Marhaba, and welcome to the Matrix Green Pill, where real people connect. Hello and welcome back to the Matrix Green Pill podcast. I'm Hilmarie Hutchison and today I'm excited to welcome Dr. Stephen Barden to our show. Stephen is a coach, mentor, and author specializing in identifying, assessing, and developing top-level leaders and organizational cultures. His insights on leadership, power, and success provides a fresh perspective on how we define and choose our leaders. There are so many exciting concepts to discover, so let's jump right in. Stephen, welcome and thank you so much for joining me today. Elmarie, thank you very much for asking. Delighted to be here. To start off, could you please tell our audience a bit about yourself? Well, I started off basically as a broadcaster, what was known in bad old days in South Africa as an announcer producer. And then I started off in radio and then television and then uh, started my own news agency in South Africa, which supplied the BBC and Australian Broadcasting and Canadians, Germans, etc. I ended up being detained and then deported by the old apartheid government in South Africa and uh, was thrown out to Britain, where I basically had to start all over again because I arrived with a baby of one-year-old, my wife of the time, and a Nagra tape recorder. I realized very quickly that although I was pretty good in the broadcasting world and I knew what I was doing, I was not going to be able to really get myself a slot as an on-screen or um, on-microphone presenter because the competition was too great. What I did realize, and that's been sort of theme throughout my life, was a shortage of good, at the time, good managers in radio and television and the media. I climbed up from being an editorial leader into being a managing editor of the company that I was running and then COO of a company called Sky in Britain and uh, then CEO of uh, media technology companies. And that pattern, if you like, continued. And I worked in Britain, I uh, worked in Europe and also worked in the US as well. That pattern continued until I decided that was enough. I didn't want to do anymore. So that's when I changed, went back to school, did a master's equivalent of a coaching course and uh, worked as a coach, as a mentor, as a consultant, working with predominantly top and senior leaders and predominantly in institutional and uh, and corporate worlds. I'm going to just go back a little bit further. So you mentioned South Africa, then being asked to leave South Africa back to the UK. So how long did you spend in South Africa and how did you end up in South Africa to start off? How did I end up in South Africa? I was born and brought up as a child of colonial parents in Tanzania. And at the age of um, 13, my parents decided that they wanted to send me to South Africa, which um, was uh, probably a mistake. It certainly was a mistake for me. But anyway, they sent me to South Africa. And um, I then went to school in South Africa and uh, university in South Africa. And I went to school in a very beautiful place called Stellenbosch in, in the Cape where a lot of the old regime prime ministers came from. I actually trained initially as a lawyer in South Africa, but didn't want to do that. So that's when I went into broadcasting and I was detained by the regime specifically for the work I had been doing at the news and also the work I'd been doing at that stage for the anti-apartheid movement as well. They didn't ask me, they actually put me on the plate and threw me out. My goodness, what an interesting life you've had. And you've certainly dabbled in a lot of different industries 
throughout your career. I know you did touch upon it earlier when you spoke about your background with 15 years in senior management, including 10 years as CEO in media and technology sectors. What was it that motivated you to transition from the corporate role to then going to the US and starting this whole new education? There were two things. One, I was actually fired out of my last job. And I was fired basically because it was quite clear that I was not able to, um, the way we were working was not in the interest of the shareholder. That was the one thing. I could have gone straight into another job, but I thought for the first time, no, no, you've got to stop now. You've got to stop and think what's been going on because Hilmarie, that job was the first job I'd taken where I did it only for the money. I knew I was going to get an L-tip, which was going to be really pretty plentiful. And I thought, particularly want to do the job, but it's, um, as the CEO of this organization, but it's going to pay me a lot of money. And the job was actually to take it into um, an IPO from, to transform it from being a white goods company to being a technology company and to take it to an IPO. And of course it had to be done pretty quickly because it was a private equity company that I, I realized that I was doing this and I was pushing and working on behalf of the shareholder that actually I was in danger of tearing this company apart. One of the things I thought to myself is, Barden, you've actually got to sit down and think now. Take your time, think, don't go into another job yet. Just think, what is it that happens to your values, your ethics? What has been happening to them over the last 15 years? How much have they been eroded? How much of what you're doing is actually based on your own value, on morality and what is good for the organization? Questions like, you know, are you working on behalf of the organization or are you working on behalf of the strongest, best of interest? So I spent a year writing and thinking about those very questions. And, you know, some people might think I was slightly insane to do so, but it was the best thing that I ever did. And I came out of that thinking, no, I do not want to go back into running companies. I've done that. I don't want to do that again. What I do want to do is to go and work with people who are leaders and share some of my experience and actually start learning from other leaders as well, if you like, in the sense that I would be, by working with them, I would be partnering with them and I would learn from them as much as they were learning from me. Very interesting. This is when you then did your PhD to become a doctor, right? Yes, that was um, probably about a decade after I started being a coach. I then started thinking what I'd really like to do is to think about how successful leaders actually work what they are like under fire. That was the original thing. I wanted to find out how successful leaders learned while they were in their power positions, if you like. So what I did was I then selected a group of objectively very successful leaders. And these were two to three star military generals. They were global CEOs, a number of global CEOs based in China and Europe, another one based in the US. And then the third lot were top academics. So these were academics at chancellor and principal level at um, very well known universities. And I said, right, what I will do is I'm going to do a, a study, which basically the only data I would use would be what they gave me. I would analyze their data, but I wasn't going to go in and sort of do a research study in which I then did my own theorizing. The data I was going to use and the, any theory that came out of it was only from the data. So I interviewed these people over a period of four years, amassed a huge amount of data, and then analyzed it. Out of that came this assumption or, or this model, if you like, which basically said that, let me just slightly back. 
because I've missed a key turn. And the key turn is that while I was asking them these questions, instead of answering my questions, they kept on throwing open windows to their childhood, all of them. One of them said, you know, my mother said that I could cure cancer at the age of four. Another one said, you know, I was a pretty weak guy and I had to learn how to overcome my bullies. Another said I had to really understand what was going on in my class because I was turning into a bully myself. They kept on telling me things like that. And I realized that actually they saw their childhood as a direct thread to where they were now. The way they were behaving, the way they were acting in their objectively very successful careers had started when they were exploring the space they needed, the learning they needed as children, which is not new. I mean, Piaget and people like that had done a long time ago. What was new was that they, what we discovered, and we discovered together with these guys, because I kept on feeding back the information to them, was that they had come away with what I call the find a foundational assumption about the power relationship that they had with their world. And this foundational assumption, if you'd like, ranges from the world is so much more powerful than me that I can do nothing. And that's only in the case of probably abused children who are being completely crushed. To the other side, and I suspect only royalty will have this one, the other side which says I am so powerful that I can do anything I like to the world makes a difference to me. The sweet spot, and that's where all of these successful leaders found themselves, was that they have the sweet spot is this balanced relationship, which they basically can say, hey, I can do business with my world, my world being my family, my institution, my army, whatever. I can do business. I can deal with it. The world can be, you know, quite nasty, if you like, or I can have an accident, or I can fall down, or I can get fired. But it's not because the world is against me. It's because I haven't been looking properly. I haven't been alert enough. From this model, I then created these terms, which basically said the assumption, that basic assumption I called the navigational stance. In other words, the stance you take, people take as they approach their world as adults. The ones who are imbalanced in their relationship with the world in terms of power, I call people have an oppositional stance. They see the world in opposition to them. They compete against it. They sometimes fear it, sometimes dislike it. And the ones who are in the middle in that sweet spot, and this is where the most successful leaders, what I call, they have a partnering stance. They work with the world. They exercise power with their world. Wow, how interesting. We're talking about the power and the role of power. So clearly there must be some leaders who are not in that optimum sweet spot. So how can those kinds of leaders redefine and understand power in a way to help them to reach that sweet spot? It's a very good question because there is in the assumption is that they can be changed because what you've learned that early stance that you take as a to learn as a child is learned. It's not genetic or anything like that. It's learned. So anything that's learned, as we know, can be unlearned or relearned. In these cases, it can be difficult because it's a very deep and early assumption that is made. How they can be changed? Basically, by making them aware, if you like, of what they're doing. So what I do is, whether I'm acting on behalf of an organization who's looking to hire a leader, or whether I am coaching and working with somebody who is a leader, we go through a really long, in-depth interview in which I go from the time they can first remember right up until the present day to be able to discover how did they explore their world? How did they learn, if you like, to be? What assumptions did they form? 
and therefore what impact it now has. And then I show them, I go through, and we go through together to show them exactly what the way they have learned to be, how it impacts their world now, how it impacts the way they exercise power, and some of the assumptions that they see. I mean, one of the things, for example, is that many people see power. If you talk to people about power, they will see it as power over. You know, I have power over somebody. Power can never be over. It always has to be with. Nobody, not even somebody who's marooned on a desert island, can have absolute power. No dictator can have absolute power. They've always got to take into account the context in which they're in. You know, the person who's marooned has got to take into, into account the context of poisonous snakes and, uh, and the lack of water. The dictator has got to make sure that he, she manages and understands the sort of power relationships around them. What we try and do with these people is to make sure that they understand how they exercise their power, what impact the way they have learned has now, and therefore, how do they need to change? It's not a case of being PC. It's not a case of saying, well, this is a good way or a bad way. You know, leaders need to be coachy or anything like that. No, no, that's not what we're saying. We're saying you have to understand what context you're in, what are you there for? What are you leading for? And therefore understand what your assumptions, the assumptions that you hold about the world, how they impact the way you're leading in your organization, not in general, in your organization. How fascinating. And to think that your childhood and the way people were raised would have such a big impact on the way they roles as leaders in the future. It's very fascinating. And as you say, I mean, you spent, what, four years studying this. In your work with leaders at all levels, what are some of the common challenges you've observed and help those leaders navigate those challenges? There's a number of things. One is this thing that I was telling you about when we're talking about power, that they feel that leaders need to lead from the front. And that is BS. You lead from the front, you're going to fall over because you always have to look behind you to see what's going on. So don't lead from the front, lead from the center. So make sure that you're, stop thinking of yourself as the top of the pinnacle. People talk about it. Hey, it's really lonely at the top. But it's only lonely at the top is because you choose to lead alone at the top. If you think yourself as the managing partner of an organization, and you surround yourself with talented, skillful, contributing colleagues, you're not going to be lonely. And guess what? Your organization is going to be really effective because if you lead from the top on your own, you're shrinking the organization to the size of your head. And even Einstein wouldn't have a head big enough to be able to run an organization, you know, a big corporate organization. So that's one. The other thing I think is to ensure that you have a sense of, of reality about what's going on in the organization. By that, I mean, when you're going about to go into an organization, look at what's going on in the organization. Look at the linkages. Look at it as an ecosystem. Because if you don't, if you start looking at it in very narrowly, you're going to find that you're going to miss a lot of things. When organizations think that they can subcontract their garment making or their shoemaking business to somebody, to an organization in Bangladesh, they think they're able to get away with whatever that organization is doing and the conditions that they have their workers in. They can't. If you do not look after your suppliers and if you do not look after your suppliers' workers as well, you're going to come short. So look at the linkages. Make sure that you're, you have a very wide level of doing. The most important one for me is 
that people, when they go into organizations, don't make the mistake of taking a team in with you. Because what you're saying to the people in the organization, I don't trust any of you. I'm going to bring my own people. So go in and work with the people that you have, and then you can hire new people if you like, but don't take in your old. There's so many people, particularly in the financial sectors, where they'd go into an organization, and I'm sure you've seen this, they go into an organization, and they bring their entire team, and then they wonder why there is such a split between them and the people who are there already. Such excellent insight. So don't lead from the front, be in the center, have a, a sense of reality of what's going on, and don't take in your own team, work with the existing team. Excellent insights. Now, in your book, how successful leaders do business with their will. You challenge the notion that good leaders are fiercely competitive battlers. Could you elaborate on the power balance you advocate for between leaders and the world they operate in? If you are competing against somebody, what we found, and by the way, this research continues. So, I, you know, every person I work with forms part of a of the database, of an anonymized database, which then we feed further into the findings that I'd had for the doctorate and for the book, which then became this book, the How Successful Leaders Do Business With Their World, those findings were confirmed and they carry on being confirmed. They don't compete because if I am in a partnering stance with the world, if I understand that my power only exists if I can work with you, right, rather was not a working against you, then to compete against you would be a complete waste of time, number one. Number two, if I compete against you, I'm measuring myself against you, which is another waste of time. Because why am I here? I'm here to do the job of leading this organization to get to where we, we wanted to go. If I'm competing against you, then actually I'm not focusing on the job. I'm focusing on you. I'm focusing on being better or worse than you. These leaders we discovered would certainly not compete. But what they would do, don't make no mistake, they might roll over you like a steamroller if you get in their way, but they will focus on doing the job, which is to lead the organization to get closer to its success, to get closer to its purpose every day. The partnering bit is why, in fact, and you say generously that I advocate, and I do advocate it now, but actually this came out of and I keep on emphasizing this research in which these people that were in this research were fully participate. They had a, a veto at every stage of my research, and they all finally agreed you know, that this is the way to go. The partnering bit is basically, it wastes no resource because you are using the partnering stance. You're going to be really alert to what your partners are doing. You're going to be really alert to what the world around you is doing. And really alert of the opportunities and the talent and the, uh, the skills that are around you so that you can go and lead. And that's another thing that I advocate very strongly with leaders is don't just look at text. Look at text and context. What you're doing, in what context are you doing? Because that's really important. So insightful. I love the whole concept of partnership and partnering. It makes a lot more sense, as you mentioned earlier, having that adversarial position that people think is the way to be a leader. Interesting, this conversation with you. I can hear that you certainly know a lot, you've done a lot, you've experienced a lot, and um, so fascinating, this topic. I know we could sit here and go on and on, but I know that uh, your time is limited, and so we will stop the conversation there for now, but um, so fascinating. Thank you so much for that. Thank you. We've come to the segment of our show, 
Well, I'd like to just ask you a few rapid-fire questions, our version of a game show. Dear me, yes, okay. Describe your idea of a good leader in three words. A managing partner. Perfect, excellent. Who is your biggest inspiration? Let me answer it quite quickly, but not in the way you expect. At one stage, I thought I have no inspiration. When I was a younger man, I thought I have no heroes and inspirations. Now I find I get inspired practically every day by somebody. So biggest inspiration... I have no idea. There are so many people that have inspired me and so many people continue to inspire me that um, I can't answer that. Excellent answer. I like that. What is one thing you do every day, no matter how busy you are? I meditate every day. Excellent. Very good. Oh, that was the game show over, so it was not so hard. Now, before we wrap up, I'd like to do the, our green pool moment. Could you share an inspiring or life-changing experience that you have gone through your green pool moment? Probably I've had three life-changing moments. One was when I was detained and thrown out of South Africa by the apartheid regime. The other one was when I was fired from my last CEO job and then had to regroup. And that regrouping was really important. And I think the third one was when I understood what power really was, that it was a relationship. It was not an imposition. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for a fascinating discussion. There's so many paths and avenues I could go down, uh, some rabbit holes we could go down with the experiences that you've had. So we probably have to make a time for another recording with you. It's been so interesting. Thank you so much for sharing your story, the knowledge that you've gained. It's brilliant. It's been lovely to have you today. Before we say goodbye, could you please tell our listeners where they can find and follow you? I'm on LinkedIn. Stephen Bardner is the LinkedIn site there. I've also got a website, which is www.stephenbardner.org. And I do two podcasts, one which I've just started. In fact, we had the first one, which got lovely result, which is called Migrant Odyssey. And I focus on migrants and refugees, both in the refugee camps and also people who've made successes when they come into the host countries. The stuff that we talked about today is in another podcast called The Power of balance. So those are the areas. And the books, if anybody should be so inclined to keep themselves up, is called How Successful Leaders Do Business with Their World, The Navigational Stunts. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. And thank you again for a brilliant uh, discussion. It was so fascinating. And I wish you all the very best. Thank you. And I wish the same to you. Thank you very much. If you enjoy our conversations, please like and subscribe. See you next Wednesday.